0: For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, that being justified by grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our Father, we stand in awe when we just consider grace. Favor that we didn't deserve, favor that we did not earn, that Christ Jesus so loved the world that he provided salvation for all men. But your word is clear, it only instructs us, those of us who believe, to be different. We're so thankful that you've saved us to conform us into the image of your Son, and we're grateful that we have a copy of the scripture in our laps this morning and that you can use it as. Seed as food to change the way we think of ourselves and other people in a view. So we humbly ask that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, our helper today, because we need Him desperately, that He would take the truth that is found here maybe a truth familiar to many, but in need of application, May you work only as He can work." And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your bibles and turn to first peter chapter 5 if you're new to the bible just find the revelation it's the last book and if you'll scan backwards you'll soon hit first and second peter we've been in a verse by verse exposition of the book of jonah but on this valentine's week i want to put the pause button on for just a moment and to speak on the subject husbands and wives i read about a couple who celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary They were in their 70s. Ted, the husband, had lost most of his hearing over the years, but they were still getting along together and so excited that they could celebrate their diamond anniversary. Their family came from all over. They enjoyed a wonderful meal together. The afternoon turned into the evening, and the grandchildren and children left, and Ted loosened his tie, went out on the front porch with his wife and began to rock, and there was just silence there for a while. And then Bessie broke the silence and she said, you know, Ted, I'm real proud of you. And he looked at her a little bit surprised and he said, well, Bessie, I'm tired of you too. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of marriages like that. They exist, but they are tired. Now, you may be here and you're not married. In fact, you never plan to be married. This message is for you. You may have failed miserably on God's blueprint of what a marriage is to be like. This message is for you. You may have a great marriage. God wants to make it better. Let's excel even more. You may have a marriage that is on the rocks. You need to hear. You see, God's called every believer to know what he says on each of the critical subjects of life. Each of the critical subjects of eschatology, pneumatology, bibliology, all the major realms of theology, so that we can teach God's people all that Christ taught us to observe, whether it comes directly from the gospels or whether it comes through the apostles whom He promised to inspire. Now, this morning I'm going to speak about Christian marriage, and of course, to have a Christian marriage. You have to be born again. I know we put the words born again in front of Christian, but you're really not Christian unless you are born again. Now with that said, marriage is an institution that is not simply for Christians. God made it for all of humanity. But the Christian marriage is supposed to be a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his, with his bride, the church. And if you're not sure you're a Christian, That would be the most important thing for you to get settled. You should come tonight to the discovery, uh, excuse me, to meet the pastor. We'll meet right under that exit sign in room 102. You say, the Super Bowl's on tonight. So what? You're not sure whether or not you're going to heaven. You're one breath away from eternity. Christ could sound the trumpet before the Super Bowl ever unfolds and you'll be left behind. Yes, I know that the majority of Americans today will not be in church, some 80%. There'll probably be 80% of Americans watching the Super Bowl. Nothing wrong with the Super Bowl, but football, like much of sports, has become an icon and a god in our culture. And the things that really matter, the things that are really important, have been pushed to the wayside. Now, you've heard it said that marriages may be made in heaven, but certainly they're worked out on earth. And they're worked out based on truth, based on what God has revealed in Holy Scripture. And I speak this morning about a marriage covenant, not a marriage contract. Marriage is not a contract. If it's a contract, then you will look for the fine print, you'll look for some loophole If you think it's a contract when you said until death do us part, what you really meant until I feel like giving in and getting out. But when you understand what God says, it's a covenant. Malachi wrote to those men who were divorcing their wives in his day, and he said, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It's a covenant until death do us part. And when you understand that in God's economy, he expects it to be permanent, then you will work hard. You will seek the living God, his grace that is sufficient for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you will do everything with his help to try to have the marriage that God wants you to have. Now, let me just tell you that the world has a ministry and in one world it's, to be conformed. The world wants to conform you. It wants to squeeze you into its mold. The church has a ministry in its transformation. The world is to be conformed, but God wants you to be transformed. And so everything I'm going to share with you this morning comes directly from Holy Scripture. And I say all that to say this, that much of what I'm going to say is in direct conflict to what the world is teaching in our day. And sadly, it's in direct conflict to the way some Christians think because they are so undertaught. We live in a culture where the Bible's not really opened, it's not exposited, and so the church is being conformed more by the principles and values of the world than they are by the Word of God. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to focus on seven verses. It's obvious that the first six verses are devoted to the wives, You might think, six verses for the wives and just one verse for the husband? That's correct. You say, is it because the wives need more instruction than the husbands? Certainly not. God just knows that the wives need to live with cantankerous, moody, unreliable men, and they need more encouragement. But understand, what we're going to look at speaks to both husbands and wives. And I will say, having been... In the ministry now for 44 years that most of the couples that I have to counsel 95% of the problem typically is with the men so men we need to listen let's begin by reading the text 1st Peter 3 follow along in your Bibles beginning in verse 1 in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, In former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands... In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, if you are using the note-taking outline, there's one online, there's one in your bulletin. We first want to focus on in verses 1 through 6 on the role of the Christian wife, and then when we come to verse seven, we will speak of the role of the Christian husband. So in delineating the role of the Christian wife, he begins by first explaining the atmosphere of submission, the atmosphere of submission. Ladies, there's a certain context, there's a certain atmosphere, there's a certain ambiance, a certain environment in which your submission is to take place. Notice how verse one begins, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. Now we need to ask a question, what does he mean by this imperative, this command, be submissive? Well, the Greek word is hupotasso, and it's a first century military term that literally means to fall in line. And it's used in Koine Greek of voluntary submission where one voluntarily places himself under the authority of someone who is over him. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians sixteen sixteen, when he asks the members of the church to be in submission, voluntarily under the elders of the church. Peter first used it in chapter 2 in verse 13. Look back in chapter 2 in verse 13. The first word is submit, the same word, hupotasso. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then Peter uses the same word a second time in verse 18 in chapter 2 when he says, be submissive, servants, to who? To their masters, or today we might say employees to their employers. This is something you are to do, this is something I am to do, this is something that all of us who know Christ are to do, and it is something that wives are called to do. So the chapter opens in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. This is not something that is coerced, this is something that is chosen, it's voluntary, and you say, well, that seems obvious, well, not in the ancient world, because in the ancient world, a woman had no rights, she had no status. Uh, She was shown little respect. In fact, as long as you lived in in your father's home, you're under the patria protesta, the father's power. And that power was transferred to your husband when you got married. And so women were often viewed as mere servants and not really respected. And so since it was socially taboo to make... Your own decisions as a woman, for Peter to say, be submissive to your own husbands. One, he's respecting her as a person. He's asking her to voluntarily submit to her husband's authority. In the same way, wives be submissive, notice to your husbands. And the word husband there is the word anir. It's different from the word anthropos, which is a generic term that you can render people, men and women alike. It's always used in reference to the male gender. Number one, because marriage is between a man and a woman. Doesn't matter what people define as a marriage, what the Supreme Court may call a marriage, what our government officials are defining as marriage, a marriage is between a man and a woman. And the husband is described here with an honorable title. This is her, her man, so to speak. Submit to your man, to your husband. And he says, in the same way, which the careful reader of scripture will immediately ask, in the same way as what? Or in this context, is the same way as who? In the same way that God the Son submitted to God the Father, as you will notice in verses 21 through 25. So Peter is reminding wives that to submit to their husband's authority is really to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that in spite of the difficult circumstances they may find themselves in, there's an atmosphere of submission. He raises it to a higher, holier plane to what Christ himself did and what Christ modeled for his people. I mean, who in all the world would not want to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ? And Jesus dealt with women in a level that people have never seen. He came in, he was loving, he was honoring, he was respectful, he was thoughtful, he was kind. Never once in scripture, not once do you ever find a woman rebelling against Christ. The only people you ever find rebelling against Christ's authority are men. And so wives are to be submissive to their husbands in the same way that Christ was submissive to God the Father. You are now point one, three practical ways to flesh out that submission. You're not to leave your husband, you are to win your husband. You're not to leave your husband, you're to win him. Now let me read verse 1 in its entirety, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, they're added almost a millennium after the scripture is completed to help us find our way around, but sometimes they can be distracting and you can miss the flow of the argument in the overall context this submission applies to whether or not your husband is a christian or not now it certainly has great application if you're married to a man today who's born again but out of fellowship with the lord his heart is not where it needs to be great application but understand that's not the flow of the passage he's dealing here contextually He has addressed governments, be submissive to governments, governments that were cruel and harmful to people. Nero was in charge when Peter pens his first epistle. He has spoken also of masters who are harsh and unthoughtful towards those who they have charge over. Remember, there was um, uh, millions and millions of people in the Roman Empire, 60 million people. Who were slaves so, so that when rome conquered a people they didn't put everyone in prison but each person was assigned a slave and so you may be a born-again christian and the roman government says here you have these two people could have been a doctor could have been a teacher could have been whatever he did in life and some of those people were put under masters who were cruel and harsh and now he brings out a third area of submission to a man who is a tyrant of sorts, who is over his wife. And so he speaks here of these who are disobedient, not to a word, but the word. Do you see it? Circle the article, the. It's talago. It's speaking of the word of God. Someone who's been confronted with the word, the truth of Holy Scripture, and they are resisting it. And Peter also uses this word uh, that they might be one, and it's a Greek verb that's an evangelistic term. It's a a strong missionary term. So he's giving instructions not just to win a wayward husband, but primarily to a woman who is married to an unbelieving husband. And that's important. How would that happen? Well, obviously, in the first century, there were people who had never heard the gospel before. You were married. Someone came into your town, preached the plan of salvation, the husband believes and the wife doesn't or in this scenario the wife believes but the husband did not obviously on both sides of the bible both covenants god makes it clear that a believer was never ever to marry an unbeliever now if you're married to an unbeliever in your disobedience or in your ignorance it's god's will for your life don't try to undo it but he's dealing here much like paul does in first corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 where he underscores, I have something to tell you that's not from me, but from the Lord, that if a, a wife is married to a lost man, you're to stay with him. But if you leave, because Paul recognized there are times when a woman might have to leave. Now, I know today under the umbrella of abuse, so oh, he's emotionally abusive or he's verbally abusive, I'm out of here. I don't think Paul would have bought that, if I understand his epistles clearly, but certainly if a woman was being physically abused, he would say, get in a safe place. But if she leaves, here's her options. Remain single or be reconciled to your husband. And he said, this is what the Lord taught. Where did the Lord teach this? Every time he spoke on the subject of the permanency of marriage. So he's dealing here with a woman who's married to an unbeliever. And if you can win him, that's preferable. That's what you want to do. Well, how do you do it? Well, that brings us to the second point. He's very practical. He says, don't leave your husband. Try to win him. Number two, you're not to lecture your husband. You are to outlive your husband. You're to outlive him. Again, we read here in verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So God not only commands submission, he reminds a wife that submission is a powerful way in which to influence her lost man. And he doesn't say, notice, without a word, he says without the word, and there's a difference. You can only be saved through the word. Excuse me, he he says without a word, not without the word. I got it backwards. You can only be saved with the word. No one in any time, in any time in all of human history has ever become a believer apart from the word of God. Even before the Bible was written, God spoke in many portions in many ways through dreams, visions, theophanies, Christophanies, many different ways. But it's the word that you heard that produces faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he's not saying that, you know, your husband can be won without a Bible. That would contradict what he just said in the prior chapter. That you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding a word of God. But he's saying you win your husband without a word. That is, you're not going to preach and plead and lecture your husband to the kingdom. You need to win him through a changed lifestyle. And when they begin to see in your life what God wants to make of you, then you may have an audience for them to listen to you. Sometimes women will say to me, Pastor Carl, my husband, he's just against Jesus, he's against the Bible, he's against this church, he doesn't like me being a Christian, he doesn't like it when I read the Bible, he doesn't like it when I listen to Christian media. I can't seem to make a difference in this life. And sometimes they reach the point where they become hopeless and so frustrated, they go home and they're almost mad. Husband, you should have been at that church today. That preacher, he was talking about you. And we need a Christian husband in this home. Our children need a Christian father. You just sit around on Sunday morning and drink your beer and, and, you know, you need to get your life right. And after a while, he'll say, well, maybe next Sunday you shouldn't go down and listen to that preacher. I'm getting sick and tired of what Pastor Carl says all the time. So you're going to win him without a word. You don't go around putting, you know, Scripture verses on the mirror and taping John 3.16 to the beer can or, you know, turning up the radio station. No, he's saying, don't lecture him, outlive him. Because as you outlive him, you begin to get his attention. So you're not to leave him, you're to win him, you're not to lecture him, you're to outlive him. Third, you're not to lead your husband, you are to respect him. You're not to lead your husband, you are to respect him. Again here, he said, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, how? By the behavior of their wives as they observe your chase and respectful behavior. So if you have an unbelieving husband or one who's out of fellowship with God, a rebellious husband, don't leave him, don't lecture him, and certainly don't lead him. Now some women will rationalize, well, he's a new Christian and I've been saved for 20 years and you think that, you know, you're more spiritual than he is or he's lost. And I'm mature in the faith, and, and you think that it's your role to lead, and it's not. And you, some women almost look down on their husbands because they're spiritually unregenerate. But he's still your head. Talk to any person who works in the government school system, it's totally out of control. By the time you hit the middle school ages, it's just a disaster. Why? Because Satan knows, if I can make the family fall apart, I can make the church fall apart, I can make the nation fall apart. And so he aims his biggest guns at the family. And so where does the child learn to submit to authority, to the teacher in school, to the police officer? and the smallest microcosm of life, where the man is the head, the leader, And the wife submits to that authority. Now, there are times when we as men will make just some stupid bonehead decisions. And if it's not some moral decision, you should, as his helpmate, come alongside and say, husband, I love you, you're the head of our home. I'm called to submit to your authority. But the decision you are about to make, in my view, is the wrong decision. But because you're my head, I will respectfully disagree. And sometimes it's not until we fall flat on our face that we recognize how important the wisdom and the insight our helpmeet has for us. You say, well, pastor, what if he forbids me to read my Bible or go to church? Then you come under the Acts 5 mandate, Acts five twenty-nine: we must obey God rather than men. And so in those contexts, you can say, now husband, God calls me to go to church. And some of you are listening to me who could be here physically, but under COVID, it became so comfortable to live stream at home. That's become your habit, not because you can't be here, but because you won't be here and you're living in disobedience. And if you think God's gonna bless your life and your home and your marriage and your children while you're living in disobedience, you're wrong. You're not to forsake your assembling together of the brethren. But sometimes a woman has to say, now husband, you're my head, But God commands me in Scripture that I'm not to forsake the assembling of the brethren on the Lord's Day, and I'm going to be with God's people. Now, many a wise woman will come to the early service, and she knows she can't stay for the adult Bible fellowships. And she sometimes even has, one lady told me, she said, I'd have a breakfast in the oven, and he'd wake up to a great smell. It was all timed on the oven, and and I was home before he even missed me. And I know other women who know that in wisdom she can't always be at every event the church has. A non-negotiable is the Lord's day. Wisdom will dictate how else you are to be involved. You say, well, Pastor Carl, my husband now wants to go to a church. This came up recently. But it's not the best church. I said, do they have the gospel? Yes. So they're Bible-believing, they believe every single word of the book. Yes. They have the plan of salvation, yes, but he doesn't really teach the Bible. It's Christianity light, as we might call it. I said, then you should rejoice that your husband even wants to go, and you should pray like mad for that, Pastor, that God would speak to your husband's heart, that he might come into the kingdom of God. So if you have a lost, And rebellious man, he needs to see your changed life as underscored through the chaste and respectful behavior that you have. So beyond the atmosphere, he now moves to the adornment of submission. Notice the adornment of submission. If you will notice twice over in this passage, the Apostle Peter speaks of adornment. First in verse three, and then you'll notice again in verse five. Now the Greek word for adornment is the word kosmos. It's used in different ways. Words find their meanings often in context. There are some words in the Bible that mean the same thing in every instance. Some words mean different things in different contexts. Sometimes the word cosmos, for God so loved the world, refers to the people of the world. Sometimes it refers literally to the earth, to the planet. Or sometimes it refers to cosmetics. We get our word cosmetics directly from this word cosmos. Cosmos. And so he's saying here, don't let your cosmetics, so to speak, be merely external. God is underscoring to women that they need to develop the internal character. And so, again, he gives three ways in which a woman could do that. First, women are to adorn themselves in their spirit, in their spirit. Let me read verse 3. Your adornment must not be merely external. Circle that word, merely Your adornment must must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Peter knows how a woman can be perpetually beautiful. And so he says, your adornment must not be merely external. In other words, God wants to draw your husband's attention not just to the outside, but to the inside, to the internals. Now, in a Roman society that the Pax Romana was in place, people for the first time, some say in all of human history, were experiencing a certain level of leisure and freedom that they had never known before. And very often in an affluent culture, People will tend to focus on the outside. Certainly men did it in the first century. Paul said bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is great gain. When accompanied by contentment, men began to tune the bodies and obsessed with it. In a culture where there was a built-in exercise program, You didn't, you know, jump in the car to come to church. You either walked or you got on your horse that you had to saddle and the clothes had to be washed out in the river and it was just work, 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 built-in exercise. But women would often, in a leisure culture, work on the outside and that's really where we are today. And so he speaks here of braiding the hair and jewelry and clothing and cosmetics. And the prophet Isaiah, he speaks of Judah which was the southern kingdom, if you remember. And he denounced them for their worldliness. And he started with the women, where he spoke of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money, purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now, he's not saying that all this hardware is wrong, he's simply saying that when it's excessive, it's worldly. Context is everything. You find in Scripture, for instance, the veil being used in a seductive way. You also find the veil being used in a modest way. So context is everything. He's not speaking against a woman being fashionable. Now, I will tell you that some preachers, in fact, some entire denominations, have as their distinctive 1 Peter 3.3, where they say, braiding the hair, wearing jewelry, that's just carnal and it's worldly. And so they convince the women that they need to skip all the accessories and, well, their exegesis is never consistent because if they keep pressing the text, he also mentions here, putting on dresses. And if you press their logic far enough, you'd say, well, then he's encouraging nudity, and he certainly is not. He is just seeking women to develop real beauty, and there's a need for balance. Now, you will notice the word merely there in the NASB, right? How is it different from the rest of the verse? Don't look at me. Look down into the text. Some of you need to bring a Bible, and if you don't have one, come tonight. You'll get a beautiful Bible. How is the word different? It's italicized. I heard someone say, that tells us it's not a part of the original. But on occasion, the New American Standard will add a word and they'll put it in italics to show you it's not a part of the original because it's implied explicitly in the Greek New Testament. And that is certainly the case here. And even if you didn't know that, just the flow of the whole verse would tell you that, that the intended meaning was not to go naked, not to wear dresses anymore than it's not to wear a dress. There's a similar, uh, wear jewelry, there's a similar passage put out in the margin next to this verse 1st timothy 2 9 and 10 1 timothy 2 9 and 10 let me read it to you paul is addressing with similar tone the same issue likewise i want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly not with braided hair in gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And some would really harp on this text. They said, hey, he forbade braided hair, golds or pearls or costly garments. And so you'll see some Christian women that are well-meaning, and I respect that they're trying to obey God. They'll wear no makeup and have no jewelry. Now, let me share some thoughts here because I know they're well-meaning, but clearly they are mistaken. And just a cursory knowledge of Scripture would tell you that, because you see very godly women in Holy Scripture wearing jewelry. Linguistically speaking, this is one of the not buts of the Bible. Not this, but this. He is making a comparative truth here. He's making a comparative truth between this and this. And let me give you another example and see if we can illustrate it, and then we'll look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Jesus made this statement in John chapter 15. He said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, if you know Jesus' teachings, if you know what he said in the Gospel of John all by itself, he made it clear that we are servants. We're slaves. He said, the servant is not greater than his master. Jesus said, He that would be great among you must be the slave of all. So when Jesus makes this statement in John 15:15, 15, 15, is not excluding the fact that we are servants. He is simply affirming: while you are not simply servants and slaves, though you are, for you've been bought with a price, Paul will say, you're more than that. You're my friends. And so, when the adornment here in 1 Timothy 2 is underscored with his not, but, he's simply saying, I want you to see that there's no absolute prohibition against these things, but they need to be worn with modesty and with strength, with, 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 with restraint. That they don't need to be extravagant where you're calling attention to yourself, where you're an advertisement. Look how different I look. That's not what God wants. So he's saying that women need to dress properly. Now let me just say parenthetically, I have no intention here of being the fashion police as your pastor. But I have a responsibility to teach the standard and there's always new people coming in the door and so you shouldn't be judgmental if you see someone coming in improperly dressed. Though if they've been here for a while, they should should know better but he's underscoring that while you may be well-dressed, you need to focus on the inner beauty. You need to be modest and discreet. And sadly, there's a lot of women today who they just want to show off their upper body. What God reserved for the bedroom, for your husband. And so you go into the clothing store and it's like, 90%. I don't know if that's accurate. I'm not a woman, but I know a high percentage of the stuff is just immodest because that's what the world is trying to sell you. And so you have to work hard. Shorter dresses, the shrink wrap look. And of course, it hit the evangelical social media this week. One pastor just came out and said, You know, sisters, I just wish that you would try to dress more modestly because it's a stumbling block to Christian men. And I'm telling you, the social media came unglued. And one prominent Bible teacher who five years ago taught modesty, now she's attacking this pastor. Why? Because she goes with where the church is. That's what false teachers do. They go with the flow because they want to be liked. Now, certainly, men, you have control over your eyes. But neither, for that matter, is a woman to cause her brother to stumble. And so he says you're to dress properly. You're to adorn yourself. And I will say you're to adorn yourselves. You're not to dress like a man. We raised four sons and a daughter, and I thought my wife did an exceptional job while our one girl was surrounded by four boys in keeping her feminine. Because that's God's plan. And I know some dads almost aspire to make their daughters tomboys and they get a certain kick out of them dressing like little boys. That's wrong. A woman should look like a woman. And now what you're doing when you have your little girls as they move into the teenage years dressing like a boy, they're hit on by lesbians. Lesbianism is a huge problem in the Beaufort County school system. And you put these kids in an environment where they're being taught transsexual behavior and transvestitism and homosexuality and everything else, and they're being hit on because of the way they're dressing when they're not that way at all. And you're setting your daughters up for disaster. So he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Notice he refers to a gentle and quiet spirit as an imperishable quality. Why? Because it lasts. Cosmetic surgery may take away some of the flabs and wrinkles, but they're coming. The sags are going to sag. We're all getting old. And if you are relying on the outside to keep your husband, it's a losing battle. We're getting old. And so, he wants the lady to be beautiful, not simply on the outside, but on the inside. Now, those words, a gentle and quiet spirit, are often misunderstood. The word gentle in the Old English says meek, but the word meek today has the implication of weak. But he's not speaking of someone who's weak. It's actually a very powerful word. It's used to describe strength under control. And the word quiet means still or tranquil. He's not referring to a particular personality type. A woman could be a, a bubbly, vivacious kind of woman and still have a tranquil and quiet spirit. He's speaking about a woman who has peace on the inside, who's not frayed all the time by the circumstances of life. And so he noticed, notice how he describes these two traits with the singular word. Did you see it? Look in the text. (laughs) Quality. The quality. He describes this, these two words, a gentle and quiet spirit as a quality. You could render it a gentle tranquility that's precious in the sight of God. So contrary to where the world places the emphasis, God places it on the inside. First, women are to adorn their spirits. Secondly, notice in verse 5, women are to adorn themselves in their submission, in their submission. So he tells us in verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Now how do you see this quality developed in your life? Very simply by having a submissive spirit. The Holy Spirit can only produce this kind of fruit in a submissive person. And this applies in every realm of life. If we're a rebel towards the government, who's in authority over us with the exception of course, when they're asking you to do something immoral, if you are a rebel to leadership in your local assembly, wherever you may be listening to me in the world, if you as children who are born again are in rebellion to your parents, if you as wives are not submitting to your husband's authority, then the Spirit of God can't transform you and grow you and mature you in that kind of a rebellious atmosphere. How many pastors today, and now pastorettes, you know, I I, I spoke, did a sermon series, one of why women can't be preachers. Someone came up to me this week, and they, they said, I want to tell you, someone came to the church, and they said they were never coming back. I said, what was the problem? Well, four years ago, you did this series on why women couldn't be pastors. And she said that you hate women. I don't hate women. And God doesn't hate women. And God Almighty says women cannot be pastors. Your argument is not with me, it's with God Almighty. Now, the culture will tell you otherwise. But God here speaks of a quality now in the marriage relationship that's very instructive to the children. And it's incredibly helpful, this role that women play to the health of not just the church, but the whole nation where she's in submission to her husband's leadership. Now, some people might say, well, that's just a first century issue. And that's the argument that some of these pastors and pastorettes are making. Oh, that doesn't apply today. That was just in Paul's day. Oh, really? You know, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction, Peter says. And Peter may have had some people who thought that way in his day. You know, we're under the new covenant. And so notice what he does here in verse five. He illustrates from women who lived under the old covenant. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And again, there's nothing wrong with adorning yourselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So Peter uses an example of Old Testament women to underscore the example that new covenant women are to follow. In other words, this is not antiquated. This is a mark of women who are truly holy, who have set themselves apart for the Lord's will. And those who say it has no application today, some of you are arguing with me in your mind this morning, and I guarantee there were some people who already turned the TV off and they left an evil message on Facebook. It just is evidence that you're unregenerate. For you see, a natural man, the way you come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead, a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He cannot appraise them. He can't absorb them because they're spiritually appraised. So women are to adorn themselves in their spirit. They're to adorn themselves in their submission. Third, women are to adorn themselves in their service their service. Peter closes this section by pointing to Sarah as an example of a godly wife who submitted to Abraham's authority and served him. Look at verse six. Just as Sarah, one of those women of old in former times, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. She obeyed Abraham. Circle that word obeyed. You know, I go through... The marriage vows with couples before I marry them. And the woman says, I promise to obey you. Now, if she can't say that, I'm not interested in marrying her. Go down the street, pay some guy a hundred bucks, he'll marry you. Go to the Justice of the Peace. You can go into Buford County. A couple came, came to Christ here, and they said, we're not sure we're married. I said, what do you mean? Well, you know, a year ago, we went into the Justice of Peace, and the lady was on the phone, and we presented the marriage license, and she just had to sign it, and she stamped it, and, excuse me, congratulations, you're married, and she went right back to it. I said, Well, you were married. You were truly, genuinely married. But you see, while you may be married, you may not have a Christian marriage. And so he speaks here of Sarah, who obeyed, calling him Lord. Now, the word is kurios, it doesn't mean she went around calling Abraham God, that would be idolatry. But you could substitute the word master, and it was used as a term of respect. She respected Abraham as the head of her home, and so she served him. Now, I recognize today it might be embarrassing to us as men if you went around calling us master or Lord in this culture. But your attitude ought to be as such, such that you could call us Lord, that you respect us as the head of the home. You say, well, pastor, if I serve and respect and obey my husband in that way, he'll abuse me. Now, hold that thought. Remember what God said in Genesis 2 and verse 18. He said, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The word suitable means corresponding to him. In other words, your wife is your completer. She's not your competitor. She's your completer. Now, interestingly, I like the King James here. It describes Adam's wife as his helpmeet. Why? Because if God's called you to make, be married, then you're really lost without your wife. She completes you. Another translation says a helper for him. Uh, the CSB translation says a helper corresponding to him. He's not talking about you coming home and your wife's serving you and you get in your lazy chair and she brings you the slippers and, you know, something to drink and you're just, you know. He's not talking about you being some human slave. And what's so interesting is that the Apostle Peter uses Sarah as an illustration in this context. Because if you know anything about Sarah, you know that she was one of the most beautiful women described in all of Scripture. When she was 60 years old, men were still trying to hit on her. And so here he's describing a woman who didn't focus exclusively on her physical beauty, but a woman who worked on internal qualities. And so he wants you to know that God is over this, that your husband is not going to take advantage of you. Notice what it says. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. God is promising you that no matter much what grief that man may give you, whatever difficulties you may face, he is looking out for you. And listen, when you have a lost husband or a rebellious husband, and there's a woman who's adorned on the inside, adorned in her submission, adorned in her service, you're going to get his attention. He's going to say, I don't know what they're teaching you down there at Community Bible Church, but I like it. I want more of that. You know, I was listening early this morning at 6 a.m. on our station, and, you know, there was Voice of the Martyrs and, Uh, They were interviewing a missionary couple that's in a closed country, and, and they were just describing as people in these villages would come to Christ, they'd either burn their house down, burn their crops, sometimes come into the house, break everything in it, or ostracize them, no longer support their business, and just so many different expressions of Persecution, But these missionaries said, one, one thing that's really neat is the children are coming to some of our outreaches and they're finding Christ. And the children are going home and the way they treat their parents is so different. They're respectful, they're obedient. The, the way they're getting along with one another has totally changed. And God is using that to bring some of these parents to faith in Christ. That's what Peter is talking about here. He's recognizing that when you are different, you are going to be the tool of God to bring that man under conviction to just show him his need for Christ. Now, it may not happen immediately. We have people who come here and they're in a mixed marriage and within six weeks, one of them is converted. Sometimes it's six years. I think of one person who waited th- three decades, 30 years before their spouse was converted. So that's the role of the Christian wife. Now let's zoom in on the men. Let's talk about the role of the Christian husband. The role of the Christian husband. Look now, if you will, at verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, what we find here are four principles for becoming a godly husband. First, you must live with your wife as your companion. You want to live with your wife as your companion. We read now in verse 7, you husbands in the same way, live. Circle that word live in your text. Live with your wives. Now, the words in the same way or likewise informs us that the responsibility for a godly home is not entirely on the wife, that there is mutual responsibility. Now, sadly, some men don't understand that, and they'll hear a sermon like this, and they'll go home, and they'll say to their wives, now, you heard what Pastor Carl said. You're to submit to me. And they lay it on their wives without really carefully examining their own hearts. But a truly Christian marriage is based on reciprocal obligation. You see that word live? It's an important word. It's two Greek words bled together. The word oikos for home and the word soon, the prefix S-U-N. We get our word S-I-N that means with. And it literally means to be at home with or to dwell together. So Peter is using a Greek verb that describes companionship or friendship within the marriage relationship. And while, men, you may provide a good living for your wife, which is admirable in the day when a lot of men are lazy, a lot of men don't want to work harder. They want their wives to go out and work. Now, listen to me. My hat is off to any family that has to send the wife out to put food on the table. But I hope you understand that is not God's plan or God's ideal. And if you're a parent, and you're raising little children in the home, you need to be teaching them the standard from when they're young because they're getting exposed to all these ideas, even in the church, that a woman should have a career. And so someone with a sense of pride says, Oh, my daughter, she's going to be a medical doctor. And wonderful. What if she has babies? Who's going to raise those children? How are you going to pay off that $300,000 medical school loan? God's ideal is clear. Now, few pastors in this nation will tell you what I just told you, and I have a whole sermon on it where I walk through point by point by point. And understand your argument is not with me, it's with God's Word. But God's Word is clear that the man is to be the provider. And the woman is to be the nurturer and the worker at home. Some women, they can be very creative in pulling that off. Where even from their home, they can have, and that's not to say you can't make money or I'm just saying that God has a plan here for husbands and wives, And he's describing us as men, not just to be breadwinners, but to live, to be at home with, to have a companionship with our wives. Do you remember on that occasion when the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus about marriage and which rabbinical school are you on? And he basically takes them back to the beginning and he says, well, haven't you read the scriptures? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so when God uses this term one flesh, he's not just speaking of physical intimacy. He's speaking about dwelling together, about making a home together. Where husbands and wives on an intellectual level share their plans and their hopes and their desires and their thoughts and hopefully they discuss scripture and What the text says and what it means is they study it each day. And certainly there's not just intellectual intimacy, there's emotional intimacy, the things that excite you and drive you and your hopes, your joys, your your disappointments, your despairs. And there's certainly social intimacy where your wife is your best friend, and that's important. The higher relationship is not the parent-child relationship, but the parent-parent relationship. Under your relationship to God that's primary, the scripture is clear that the husband-wife relationship is to supersede the relationship that you have with your children. And that's important. That builds a great sense of security in the heart of a child where they know that you as a husband and wife are best friends. And that's what God wants to make. And, and then certainly there's physical intimacy. And so he speaks here of living with your wife, or the New King James says dwelling with your wife. You see that word live with? If you were reading the Old Testament where it says Adam knew his wife, describing physical intimacy, he knew his wife. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use the identical word that is used here in First Peter chapter 3. It describes of an intimacy on the physical level that the world has grossly cheapened and abused. And people go home and it's 24-7 filth. And you let your kids be exposed to 24-7 filth and you give them these handheld computers before they have the spiritual spine to be able to guard and watch over their own hearts. And you wonder why so many are immoral in our day. And so the world is just said, two people, bring them together, hook up as they say. God thought up sex. He's the author, He put the plumbing in, He knows how it works. And His design is one woman and one wife, but the world has lowered it and cheapened it, where people live like animals. You must live with your wife as your companion. Secondly, you must live with your wife with consideration, with consideration. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. If you're using the King James, it's most literal here, and I think helpful in this particular case. It says, live with your wives according to knowledge, katagnosis, according to knowledge. That's literally what it reads. We're to understand our wife. That takes time. You have to listen. You know, men, we, we tend to be very achievement-oriented. We want to buy something, build something, do something. And once we've reached our goal, we want to go on to the next one. You know, you you buy a a grill or some piece of electronics or a new car and and you read the manual and you want to understand all the ins and the outs. You you, you live with that new car according to knowledge. God wants us to live with our wives according to knowledge. Oh, yeah, I dated her and I found out everything she liked, what her favorite food was, what her favorite flowers were, and I lived with her according to knowledge, but, you know, she married me, I got the fish, and, you know, let's move on to the next catch. And that's not God's plan. So God wants you to spend time together. And you can't get to know your wife unless you're spending time together. And most of you have been here for a while. You know that for 42 years, I've dated my wife once a week. And even when the children were small and we were broke and we traded off with another couple, you babysit for us on Tuesday nights, we'll babysit for you on Friday and but we just had time together. And that's important. You need to carve that time out. You need to make it happen. It's much like your relationship with God. On the one hand, the Bible says pray without ceasing. Pray all the the time. On the other hand, Jesus said when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, there was that general ongoing prayer, but then there was that prayer where it's just you and God and you've shut out the whole world. And that's really what we need to parallel in our relationship with our wives. We need to have that focused time, just her. And then you will discover that when you're on the run, things will be good. Things will be different because you've heard each other. And what is so sad in our day is because the priorities have been out of whack and all of a sudden the kids are gone. And you got two people staring at each other that don't know each other, and they end up divorcing each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. I hope you realize that God and Jesus are equal, and yet the Father is described here as the head of Christ, and the men and women are equal. We're not talking about equality, we're talking about different roles. But what I want you to see is that just as Christ is the initiator, the man as the head is to be the initiator. John will write, we love him because why? He first loved us. God initiated with us. And so men, we are to take the initiation. Don't let your wife ask you for that day. You ask her. And if you're not the leader after a while, she really won't respect you. So live with her as your companion, live with her with consideration, live with her as In displaying courtesy. Live with your wife displaying courtesy. Let's read a little bit further into verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor. One translation says, treat her with respect. But the NES, King James, New King James, ESV, I think are correct in rendering it Grant her honor, because the word honor is a more majestic word than the word respect. For example, we may respect the 70 mile an hour speed limit, but I don't stop and plant flowers around it. Even so, there's a distinction in scripture between respect and honor, and he's using the word to may. Now, we'll come back to that in a second, but notice how he describes the woman as the weaker vessel. We are to live with her according to knowledge, understanding her, giving her honor as someone who's deemed a weaker vessel. By weaker, it does not mean she is inferior. Which is weaker, Japanese silk or burlap? Well, fine Japanese silk is, but it's not inferior to burlap. Which is weaker, gold or cast iron? Gold is, but it's not inferior to cast iron. Now, with uh, what's weaker, porcelain or stainless steel? Now, with porcelain, you can drink a cup of tea, but you can't drive nails with it. They're designed differently. And so, when he describes a woman here as a weaker vessel, and I like the word vessel in the 95 edition. Because the word is also used by the Apostle Paul to describe a body. He says to men that you are to know how to possess your body, your vessel in sanctification and in honor. He is not speaking of your wife being weaker intellectually or socially or spiritually, but physically. And so you are to recognize that. And look, I didn't want to marry a woman who could out-bench press me, you know? Uh, Women are just built differently. You don't typically see a woman carrying a hundred-pound bag of concrete over her shoulder. She's weaker. And we need to recognize that as men. Don't, don't, Don't treat her like a man. Don't put the same physical expectations on her that you would put on a guy. And notice the word honor. I like again the word honor because it's translated the same word to me in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7 as precious. And in that context, it's used to describe Christ's blood that is precious. I mean, how precious is Christ's blood to you? You are redeemed by it. And so you are to see your wife as a vessel that is precious. You are to treat her with that kind of Honor. So, how precious is your wife to you? For some men, she's not very precious at all. And she meets some guy who comes along when they're just banging heads. And he treats her with a sense of preciousness. And before long, there was emotional infatuation. Before long, there's adultery. Before long, the marriage dissolves. D, you must live with your wife, sharing communion. You must live with your wife, sharing communion. Let me read further the whole verse. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. They are fellow heirs, share and share alike. That's Paul's point in Galatians when he says there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. People have taken that to teach everything from women pastors to homosexuality being legitimized. And all Paul is saying contextually, if you read the whole chapter, is that women and men equally slaves and free Jew and Gentile equally share in all the blessings that God is giving us in salvation. Paul underscores this need for communion as fellow heirs. Peter assumes here so that your prayers will not be hindered. He assumes that men and women pray together, husband and wife. Paul says it this way, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. He's talking about physical intimacy contextually. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And he's not talking about sexual perversion, where some guy is asking his wife to do something because he's soaked and dumped his mind in pornography. It's not what he's speaking of. And then he adds in verse 5, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Paul and Peter both assumed that couples would pray together. Now, we've already noted intimacy socially, intellectually, physically, in becoming one flesh. He is underscoring here spiritual intimacy, couples who prayed together, and when couples pray together, the other things tend to work. Some of you guys need to go home because you're the leader. Headship involves leadership. And you should take your wife by the hand and say, is there anything in particular that you want me to pray for you for? I've preached this over the years, and sometimes somebody will come up to me and they'll say, you know, Pescar, I took you at that challenge, and now my wife and I, we pray every night. We never did that before, but we pray every night now. And our marriage is so different. It is so great. Jesus promised that we're two or three gathered to gather upon anything. He would answer. He would be there in our midst. There's just an intimacy that happens when a husband and wife pray. You know, when it's just you and God, the roof's off. But it's when you and your spouse, not only is the roof off, the walls are down. And God just has a way of melting together two hearts when husband and wives pray together. You say, I've been married for 30 years and I've never done that. Today can be the first day. Surprise your wife. Be the leader. Now you may be here, and I want you not to miss what he says here so that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you see that word, your? It's not a singular word, it's a plural word. He is talking about the prayers of husbands and the prayers of wives. Now, sometimes we just dump this verse on the husbands, but he's speaking about both. And you may be here and you say, you know, we just fight like cats and dogs. Well, God doesn't answer the prayers of cats and dogs. He wants to answer the prayers of two people, husband and wife, who are in communion with one another. You say, we're saved, we're going to heaven, but we still have a crummy marriage. Well, maybe you should take a close look at the foundation this morning and do some soul searching before the Lord. And as need be to confess some sin and to repent of it, let today be the first day of the rest of your life. Now, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not born again, you can't have a Christian marriage. Again, I would implore you to come tonight, meet the pastor, forget the Super Bowl. The only important part is the last 15 minutes. Just look, we got people who are going to be here tonight for a want. They're going to serve our children. They got their priorities in order. I mean, who won the Super Bowl 20 years ago? Do you remember? 10 years ago, five years ago. I don't know who won it last year. It's not that important. But your home is, and your relationship is, and certainly your eternal destiny. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We know, Lord Jesus, you didn't come here just to teach us how we could save ourselves, but you came with your own precious blood to make a payment so that we could be forgiven, so that for the first time ever, the Spirit of God could come live inside of us where we become a temple of the Spirit of God and changed people. Now, I know, Father, some have crossed that line, but they haven't grown very much. They're undertaught. They don't really know their Bibles very well. So I pray that we might be an encouragement to them that we might be sensitive to one another, helpful to one another as members of one another. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you've never made a public confession of faith, God calls you to do that. Some people say, well, my, my faith is personal. No, it's not. Not if you know Christ. There's no such thing as a personal faith. It's personal only in the sense that only you personally can make a decision for Christ. But if you know Christ, Jesus taught, you'll go public. You'll be willing to openly, publicly confess Him before men, and it should express itself in baptism if you haven't done that. So I want to give you that opportunity. You may be here, you've been saved and baptized, but you don't have a church home. You may be in Graniteville or Gray's in the same setting but we can be that church for you. You feel like this is a place where I can learn and grow and bring my friends and they can hear the gospel and we can grow together. Well, if you want to come and serve with us, we would honor the opportunity. So Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out and meet me here in the front.